Our first scripture reading this morning is from second, the second chapter of 2 Kings, found on page 317 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. 2 Kings 2, verses 1 through 12. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, No, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted to you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. But when he could no longer see them, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Our gospel lesson comes from the ninth chapter of the gospel according to Mark, beginning with verse number two. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said, Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. 
Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And we, O Lord, are about the activities and busyness of construction all week long. Allow our hearts for a moment to set down our labor and receive instead your direction so what we build may not be in vain, but in glory to Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the gospel lesson. It, by the way, appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This gospel lesson happens every year on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. It is the story of the transfiguration. What on earth are we supposed to do with the transfiguration story? There was a time when I would have excitedly brought you a wonderful sermon unpacking all of the theological symbolism found in this magnificent pre-Ash Wednesday text. The ascent to the mountain to the very place where earth pierces into the heavens. The wonderful theological symbolism the, where the disciples see Jesus ascending and mystical glory is unfolding. It post-figures, it looks back to Moses and his ascent to Mount Sinai. It also post-figures to when Elijah and Elisha are ascending just before Elijah is carried off into the heavens in the chariot of clouds. The glorious shininess of Jesus' raiment reminds us of the passage in Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and his face was so shiny and radiant that they asked him to wear a veil so that they wouldn't have to look upon him. It postfigures to all of the imagery here in the middle of Christ's ministry where he goes up to a mountain and then he goes to Mount Calvary and then he goes again to the mount where he ascends into heaven. The transfiguration also portrays the historic flow of Scripture. We have the law of Moses and the prophecies of Elijah and the love that Jesus gives. Moses receives the law. Elijah denounces abuse and injustice. And then Jesus contextualizes them both with the gospel of God's grace. And of course, the story ends with a voice of God from heaven saying that they are to look at the law and the prophets through the filter of the gospel, through God's magnificent love and irresistible grace. And then there's the word transfiguration, which in the Greek, by the way, is metamorphote, as in metamorphosis, the complete grand morphing of the soul and its encounter with the scriptures. It's the same word that we use when a, when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It goes into its cocoon, it wraps itself and emerges as in, I could talk to you about pollinator gardens. I could talk to you about about your need to occasionally cocoon when you're overwhelmed. Some version of these I'm sure I could deliver with great enthusiasm and expect you to hang on every proof text, to marvel at the gymnastics of my mastery of Scripture and the thorough explanation of each and every theological point. But as I can tell by your faces right now, none of that's particularly interesting nor is it particularly helpful here just a few days before Valentine's Day. We'd all be working really hard to get through the sermon time, me working hard to tell you how important these insights happen to be, 
and you trying hard to cover up the fact that you really just want to doze off. It dawned on me approaching this text now for the 36th year of preaching that I think up until now I've been getting it wrong. That insight is implicit in my opening question. What on earth are we supposed to do with the transfiguration story? I think the problem lies with the verb. What are we supposed to do? Rabbi Ed Friedman, who I studied with, said the difference between art and propaganda is that propaganda answers all of the questions. Consider that the next time you watch a campaign commercial. There's nothing artistic about them. They leave you no doubt as to your responsibility come election day. Here is evil, here is good, you know what to do. And that's the operative word. What to do. True art, on the other hand, leaves some things open-ended, unanswered, incomplete. Art leaves room for the viewer, the listener, the audience to experience, to interpret, to feel. Years ago, I was working as the evening manager at the Social Services Center at Fourth Church, and that evening there were no clients at the time, and so I had the TV on and I was watching a rerun of the movie Jaws. Yannick came in. Yannick was one of, the, one of the housemen, one of the custodians. We called them housemen because the pledges were much bigger. Stuck his head in and looked at the television and immediately sat down and he said, I've never watched Jaws. I said, wasn't Jaws released when you were living in Poland? Yannick had come to the U.S. during the crackdown of Solidarity. He was actually an organizer in Poland and had to be secreted out of the country because his life was threatened. And uh, he was a special education teacher, but a union organizer, and ended up as a custodian at Fourth while he worked on his English. And he said, uh, no, Jaws was released during martial law. Yannick told me, every time Soviet cracked down on all Western movies pulled out of TV and theater so we cannot see. I said, well, what on earth do you watch during a Soviet crackdown? Yannick got this goofy smile on his face and said, oh, we could watch Soviet programs about happy communist workers. That's propaganda. Now, I'm not saying Jaws is art, <laughs> but compared to happy communist worker movies, as far as Yannick concerned, this was high art. We are currently engrossed culturally in a ridiculous public debate about the teaching of history to young people or old people, just teaching of history. On the right, we have propaganda telling us that we should teach only the material that tells children that America is great, America is right, America is wonderful. And on the left, there are also expressions of propaganda, that America hurts people, that America exploits, that America is bad. When the reality of history is that it is messy, and that there is in the thread of any looking back, both things about which we should be shamed and things about which we should be proud. History is no less clear 
than the present happens to be. Propaganda answers the questions. Arts leaves the question open. Following his magnificent ballet interpretation of Stravinsky's Firebird Suite, by the way, uh, Google Mikhail, Mikhail Baryshnikov and take a look at his dancing the Firebird Suite. You will thank me. But Mikhail Baryshnikov was asked after his performance, what does it mean? And Baryshnikov smirked and said, do you want me to dance it all over again, only slower? <laughs> there on Mount Transfiguration, Peter is the stand-in for the blithering propagandist. Ah, I know what it means. We should build a monument, a series of booths, an interpretation center, perhaps an institute or retreat camp. We just know that there's three of you, so there should be three buildings, right? That's what this all means. A tourist trap, perhaps. He stands in not only for us, but for the other two witnessing disciples, because Mark comments he didn't know what to say, which, by the way, is interesting because he's talking anyway. He didn't know what to say because they were terrified. Now, I'm going to drop in a little Greek here, even though my introduction maybe would have implied that I didn't, but you need to know the word for fear. It's ekphobos. Ekphobos, as in phobia. That's where we get the word from the Greek for fear. Ekphobia. That means I am outside of myself in fear. They didn't know what to say because they were no longer in touch with themselves. They were so astounded. And unless you think that the word only means fear in a terrified, anxious sense, you need to know it's the exact same sense that is in Luke 2, 9, captured in the King James Version and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Can you hear that verse without hearing Linus's voice? I know your age, if that's the connection. It's what the shepherds felt. They were sore afraid. It wasn't fear that necessarily meant a negative reactivity. It was a fear that was outside of themselves. And so the other two disciples, James and John, had no words. A silence in the presence of something inexplicable. Which brings me back to my opening question. What on earth are we supposed to do with this transfiguration story? I think this helps explain Jesus' interaction with the disciples as they're coming down the mountain in Mark 9.9. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus is saying that people will wonder what it means and what they're supposed to do. And that's not what this experience is for. Some things in life make no practical sense. And that's a good thing. It's the things that fill us with awe. The things that give us wonder. Or the things that make us sore afraid. 
or as Danny sometimes offers when I'm mansplaining something again, do you have to provide commentary on everything? That's my Peter brain talking. Encountering something wonderful, something unexpected, something breathtaking. I will say things like, yes, that's a beautiful sunset. Do you know why reds and yellows are more intense in a sunset than during the day? That's because the earth, as it rotates away from the sun, the sun's rays are filtered through the greater density of the atmosphere, so the dust particles reflect and diffuse the light, leaving the reds and the yellows and the oranges, diffracting at a sharper angle than would the blues, although sometimes when you see purple, it's even greater distortion than the full light spectrum. Shut up, shut up, shut up. I don't know why you don't just shut up. That's my Peter brain talking. Peter, the patron saint of mansplainers. So? What on earth are we supposed to do with this transfiguration story? Well, perhaps on earth, nothing at all. Confronted by the sheer glory, the other disciples got the moment in a way that Peter did not. When Jesus was transfigured before him, says Mark, and his clothes became dazzling white such that no one on earth could bleach them, there appeared with them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter had a lot to say. James and John, silence. God make us sore afraid. Amen. Please stand and join with me in the affirmation of faith the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered by the Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to quicken the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body 